This is part two of a two-part conversation between the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement Director, Michael Reed Trice, and Dr. John Borelli. In this episode, Dr. Trice and Dr. Borelli discuss Laudato Si, racism, grief, and lamentation. Take a listen. Fratelli Tutti is different in that it's a social encyclical, beginning with the fact of COVID-19 and addressing how are we going to live in a post-COVID-19 world, because it is a different world. So there's a lot in there on politics, but a given is religious pluralism. It is the interreligious encyclical. We had one in 1995 from John Paul II that was the ecumenical encyclical that all may be one, Ununum sent. Fratelli Tutti is the interreligious encyclical. It presumes, it presumes religious pluralism and addresses it. And it's inspired by the Pope's relationship with the Grand Imam of Al-Azhar University, the major Muslim university in the world, the first in many ways university uh, that ever was created is in Cairo, Al-Azhar. And in 2017, Pope Francis went there and spoke at the invitation of the Grand Imam to a conference on global peace. He talked about interreligious dialogue, a relationship continued between the two of them. And in 2019, they signed a document on human fraternity as equal partners, promoting human fraternity and ending oppression and injustice. Now, people say, well, why the grand imam? He's a recognized authority in the Islamic world. And Francis in Fratelli Tutti says, just as Francis of Assisi went on the fifth crusade in 1219, and walked across the lines of battle and met with the Sultan uh, uh, Malik al-Kamel and met with him as person to person. They didn't accomplish a peace, but they influenced each other in a significant way. Uh, And he drew that parallel with himself and the Grand Imam working on uh, the document on human fraternity. And so then he goes into the COVID-19 issues and how we need to address these. And then he concludes with some reflections on interreligious relations. And he refers again to uh, Francis of Assisi, then Charles de Foucault, who was a, uh, an early 20th century missionary among Muslims in North Africa, who was there learning their ways and entering into their society. Uh, he refers to Mohandas Gandhi, he refers to Martin Luther King and Desmond Tutu. And so uh, it's a message of let's work together multi-religiously on bringing harmony to human society. Let's, let's take care of the gap between rich and poor. Let's have government that governs for people and not for individuals, all of these things. Um, so yeah, with Francis, humanism is important. And we got to continue the work of restoring unity, but he's really moved full, full swing into interreligious relations. Speaking of, of interreligious relations, so the listener knows uh, among the many aspects of your own professional and vocational life, in 1985, you also co-founded the Catholic Muslim Dialogue of New York. And uh, I wonder now, against the backdrop of pluralism, in terms of the advances from 1985 until now, are there certain features of pluralism, maybe one or two that you would say, yeah, this is this has changed enough that even perhaps bilateral dialogues across religions that we may have thought we needed to have a preference option for maybe maybe it's much more inclusive now how do you respond to that is pluralism changed the way we would even dialogue with each other i think it has um you know in 1965 when vatican ii ended 
and it promulgated its text on interreligious dialogue. And I want to say this, the text was mainly started to correct the whole dismal history of the relation of Christians to Jews, coming off as they were so many years after the, the end of World War II and Shoah. Um, but it expanded. Why? Because there were those who showed up at the council already saying we needed to improve how we understand who Muslims are, given that they have certain shared aspects of our faith, too, that they look to Abraham as a father, and that there are certain scriptural aspects to Islam that makes it distinct from all the other religions besides Judaism. And then there were missionaries to Asia and Africa and say, well, what about us? We live as minorities among these great traditions with the, that are identified with our civilizations and our peoples. And so there was a whole third section uh, that was on Hinduism, Buddhism, the great religions, and the, uh, the traditions of Asia and Africa, uh, of, of what we call tribal traditions, the indigenous traditions. But anyway, um, when this is promulgated in the United States, 1965, well, we had the great immigration law under Lyndon Baines Johnson, where we opened up immigration from all over the world and more and more Asians began to come into this country. More and more Muslims began to come into this country. Up until then, most of the Arabs in this country who came here were Christians. More and more Muslims were coming in and people from South Asia were coming in. So the face of America was going to change. Had you said Muslim to Americans, they would have thought of black Muslims. We were still in the thick of the civil rights movement. And they were thinking of the black Muslims of Elijah Muhammad. And in fact, in 1965, Malcolm X was assassinated. So that's what they would have thought about, I think. I think they would have thought about um, these events. And um, they wouldn't have thought about Islamic relations. But gradually, as we came along Detroit, Houston, places like that, the people involved in ecumenism began to talk about you know, there are more and more Muslims here, and we got to take account. So we began conversations. We tried. Uh, we, in New York, I started one locally, and then when I got to the Bishop's Conference, it was hard to start something nationally. We tried to do it, but it, the model didn't work, the model that we used in ecumenism. So we went to various regions, like where various headquarters were. and uh, We went to New York, where the Islamic Circle of North America was prominent, and we convened Muslims and Catholics from various dioceses there where they could easily commute to the place of the meeting. We did this in the Midwest. Islamic Society of North America was, had moved to outside of Indianapolis. So we had this dialogue there, our first. We went to California and we chose around the LA area, Orange, California. And so we had some, what we did was we said, we said to the Catholic officers for various dioceses, who is your Muslim partner? Invite your Muslim partner and come to the dialogue. So we had sort of self-selection who was coming. And we began some conversations, and we found that uh, we could inspire a lot of local activities. We had all three of these dialogues going and rapport with Muslims before 9-11. And you could see with every, you know, like the Arab oil embargo or the Iranian hostage crisis, at every point, things got very negative in terms of Muslims and the stereotypes about Muslims and the negativity and uh, acts of violence, uh, the Oklahoma City bombing. People wanted to say that that was Arab Muslim uh, terrorists who did that. And they were wrong. It was white supremacists. But it was declared by some of these so-called uh, terrorist watchers. 
uh, the, the Gulf War, uh, getting involved in the Gulf, first Gulf War in 1991, all of this. Very difficult for Muslims to get a really, they kept working at it, but getting a, a, an equal voice in the media on this. After 9-11, the response of churches to Muslim friends was enormous in many ways. And it was a kind of change, even though we still have had difficulties to deal with. We had all of this in the last few years about Muslim ban and immigration and everything else, um, the, the ways of defining things. But I think, you know, now that we have two and even a third generation of Muslim Americans, people learning to be scholarly and articulate, eventually, like we have Jewish scholars now of the New Testament, we're going to have Muslim scholars of the New Testament who will be able to work with the to tools for understanding the New Testament and will then begin in themselves to replicate a kind of, of conversation between uh, Muslims and Christians. So I think that we're headed in that right direction. Now, this is the United States with our great diversity. Uh, in various parts of the world, there's still great difficulties. The Pope went to Iraq, and he did another game-changing thing. He, he met with uh, Ayatollah Sistani, who wanted to meet with him, who showed great respect for the Pope, and the Pope showed great respect by listening most of the time while Sistani spoke. And this is just in the last three months in 2021. That's right. And uh, Sistani is a Shia. So the Shia are the smaller numbers of Muslims. Most of the interactions have been with Sunnis. The Grand Imam is a Sunni. Uh, all of the people and most of the people in the Arabian Peninsula are Sunnis. And so trying to get some kind of conversation with Shia in a way that Shia, Shiite Muslims. Now in California, Shiite Muslims met with Sunni Muslims in our dialogue. Uh, we actually had both the Sunni and Shia co-chairs co of the dialogue with the Catholic chair. Um, that's not true in other parts. Of, and, and every region, the Christian communities, the largest Christian community remaining in Iraq are Chaldean Catholics, Eastern Rite Catholics. Uh, so this overlap of Eastern and Reformation churches and Catholic church, there are Eastern Catholics that are part. Ukrainian Catholic church is the largest Eastern Catholic church. It's part of what's going on in Ukraine right now uh, in terms of internal Orthodox structure politics, as well as the whole standoff between Ukraine and Russia. Um, so it's, there are different dynamics that we have to work with. Uh, but I think we can be a light to the world in the U.S. on this. Uh, people know that. And, uh, and what we can accomplish here is beginning to have significant impact worldwide. The Pope would like to extend the document on human fraternity into the Far East. So when he went to Thailand and he went to Japan in November of 2019, before the pandemic, he talked about human fraternity. And can we, some of these themes like citizenship and so forth, social justice, can we talk these? He wants to promote this. And I think he's trying to find a way to broaden the interreligious conversation. Uh, but forming a personal relationship with the Grand Imam, I mean, a, a personal relate where they met, they walked together, they talked about things, they gained one another's trust. That's what was needed. And that's what Pope Francis is about.
ecumenical and interreligious friendship. Um, so in, in light of Fratelli Tutti and, and thinking about his desire, Pope Francis's desire to accompany communities and against the backdrop, let's say, of pluralism, but also with a clear, we might call it existential threat to the world, which is mm-hmm. that our environment is degrading and we are responsible for that to a great right. degree. And we are, and the, the scientists are telling us that um, our capacity to respond actually is within a particular frame of time that we're we're needing to be able to respond more diligently together. So dialogue has to somehow give way to a kind of collective action, doesn't it? Is he asking for that? Is he asking for yes. to be much closer to the ground of our everyday lives? He wants he wants there to be action, the dialogue of action. He wants us, we need to act together. We need to form friendship. We need to emphasize the things that uh, unite us and nourish one another. But we're forming this because we've got to take care of the needy together, and we've got to take care of the earth. Uh, we've got to provide a future for our children. And uh, that's been the big focus. Now, interestingly enough, just before the pandemic, the Catholicos of Lebanon, the Armenian head of the of the that branch of Armenian Orthodoxy that is headquartered in Lebanon, hosted a meeting of 30 veteran ecumenists from across the churches. And uh, if you look at this published document, uh, you will see that um, uh, it's uh, the names there. It's quite a quite an array of veteran ecumenists from various churches around the world. They committed themselves to be more inclusive. That we need to we need to consider our relationship with all humanity and with the earth. And they they realize that they we've got to put our ecumenical energy towards climate change. So it's having an effect. Um, it's a report. It's not an action document, but it's a report, and it shows what people are thinking about. Um, you know, here we are uh, addressing significant challenges of systemic racism in the country, in the United States. Uh, we are doing this along the backdrop of an ongoing pandemic with uh, vaccines out, but we know that just like the pandemic itself, there's a kind of unequal distribution of all of this suffering that's being experienced. And it's a time where some theologians and sociologists and others are calling for an acknowledgement of grief, let's say, at some of the many systemic injustices today, and that that acknowledgement itself might break way or break out into some creative capacity for acting together in the way that you just discussed, acting together in the way that Pope Francis is really asking for in a dialogue of action. What do you see as what needs to be acknowledged in terms of grief today relative to systemic injustices? And what is the role of the church today and in the years to come to addressing these collectively in society? Well, I think that's addressing grief is a huge ministry that's already there in the church. We know how to do this. Um, And I think um, for us in the United States in particular, this is (coughs) coming out in uh, how we address the legacy of slavery. And you can see that it's really a matter of learning and giving, learning to grieve and bringing people together for a kind of lamentation for what had, has happened. It's, it's remarkable that we're having this turnaround now. Uh, it's taken this long that a lot of the things that we just presumed for the last decades um, aren't true anymore, uh, perspectives and everything else. Um, I, I, I don't care if you descend from immigrants that entered through Boston and stayed north of the Mason-Dixon line and moved all the way across to Seattle. You benefited from white privilege in countless ways. Um, and the institutions of our society were structured uh, on slavery to 
accommodate slavery. I think it's the reason we have the filibuster. So the Southern senators could still retain their voice on slavery. And then it became still retained the way that they wanted to structure a segregationist society. I think it was. Um, and that's just one example. But it's in our churches. It's in all. It's in our we're, we're learning how it's in our academic institutions. Uh, the this people who worked um, at building our institutions, slave labor who were brought in and so forth. So that's one way. Um, one of our African-American uh, Catholic theologians actually said that, that we need to recover lamentation, scriptural kind of theme of practice, um, the lamentations for the loss of Jerusalem, the lamentation for what can never be undone has been, has, that had occurred, the, the, the experience of slavery, beginning to understand the, how, it just never dawned on me growing up, 1619, well, that's not long after 1607. That's how soon the slaves were actually brought into the Virginia colony. And uh, at the time of the revolution, where I live in the area of Washington, Maryland and Virginia, the population, one third of the population on the eve of the revolution of the colonies lived here in Virginia and Maryland, and one half of the slaves. It's all part of the foundation event. So that we're, you know, and so our uh, this uh, our identity politics, our identity theology is uh, at risk now, and it should be. And we need to kind of work with that and transform that. So um, I think that's that's one way. But there's other grief. There's other ways that uh, we can grieve. I think uh, the fact that after not uh, after nine eleven, what did people do? They went to churches in huge numbers. People reported that there were there were capacity crowds at these huge basilicas and cathedrals and churches in downtown areas that haven't had a capacity crowd in decades. They came just because they wanted to grieve together and acknowledge together and say something together and express this together. So I think we can. I think we have as welcoming churches. And and this is Francis. Look what he did during COVID uh, using the remarkable backdrop of an empty um, piazza there where he had his outside service, you know, of recognition of this, of this pandemic. Um, so I think, uh, I think there's a huge role here that we should be playing rather than attending to many of the petty things that uh, tend to uh, divide us. And this is, by the way, is in scripture, um, not Greek or Jew, not slave or free. It's interesting that those two expressions occur one after the next in uh, Corinthians, where Paul is speaking about the unity. Uh, he is a Jew, was talking to the non-Jews, us and them, not us and them. On the day of President Biden's uh, inauguration, I was watching and I saw that uh, a reporter asked Madeleine Albright how she thought that day. And she said, until we get away of this us and them thinking that throughout all aspects of our society, we're never going to get beyond this division. Is, is it the case that pluralism, cultural pluralism, religious pluralism, ethnic pluralism allows for a practice of lamentation that is meant to be communitarian based, steeped in community in the way you're um, noting from Corinthians that somehow lament without pluralism is greatly diminished today? Greatly diminished. Well, Francis was uh, with uh, the, the, the Anglican Bishop of the South of America said when Francis was elected. It was interesting. He's a wonderful man. He always welcomed me. 
he often had me sit next to him and he told me, told me, we need you as Anglicans. We need you for who you are. Uh, the gifts, a part of ecumenism now is gift sharing. What are the gifts that our churches have preserved that we haven't preserved? How can we enrich our lives? And an opportunity to grieve together. Good Friday service would be an ex- extraordinary opportunity. We should be using Good Friday as a day of gathering among Christians on this common theme and common prayer. Um, uh, and that's, uh, and we're grieving. We're, and if we really reflect on the cross, we're really grieving on when we have come to the cross, you know, in those crises in our lives. When have we come to the cross? And so I think you're right. I think we've got a great opportunity here among Christians, but also interreligiously in a way. We need to, it helps us enter into uh, the various uh, different cultural ways that people express themselves on these uh, important matters. So. But is there anything else that you want to say that we haven't talked about that you want to add that you've thought? Well, is- I, I, I actually believe that um, church life is going to be different after the pandemic when we come back together, um, at least for a while, because we took it for granted and then it changed. And I think we have an opportunity to make it meaningful uh, in a new way. And we, we really are at an inflection moment as we come out of the pandemic. We can go back to the way we were, but I, we're different. We are different. And uh, in some ways, the 1918 pandemic was probably just a continuation of the suffering of World War One. And so for a lot of people, the new life afterwards was as much beyond the pandemic as it was beyond the carnage of World War One and the end of that kind of society. For us, um, things should change. Um, and I think our understanding of church will uh, increase in significance if we can have this common vision of church, of, of, uh, of being church um, in a multi-religious world uh, as an oppor- and, and engaged in that multi-religious world as an opportunity to adjust and change and be realistic. It takes a long time, uh, like with ecumenism, It's easy for the churches to come apart. It's harder for them, for Christians, to come back together. Uh, And it involves a lot of healing of memory. So we've got a lot of healing. And, and, you know, they're out here, the the enormous disparity of wealth. And and that was evidenced in the pandemic and of opportunity. Yet a lot of people pitched in, started helping out, brought a lot of goodness out of people uh, besides the selfishness it brought a lot of goodness out of people so we have a great opportunity to i think uh, reflect on this um, with that we could have ministers emerge from this quickly in an educated way that's going to take a longer time and considerable change in the structures of ministerial education i think You have been listening to the Religica Theo Lab podcast in the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University. To learn more about the center's work and for resources to be used in local communities, visit us at seattleu.edu/the-center.